Welcome to the Plant Cunning Podcast, where we explore a relationship to plants, other people, and the mysteries of nature. Coming to you from the High Allegheny Plateau in central New York, we are your hosts, A.C. Staubel and Isaac Hill. Episode 66, Wild Witchcraft with Rebecca Beyer. Rebecca is an herbalist, a folk magic practitioner, and an author, and a tattoo artist, in Western North Carolina. In this episode, we speak with her about magic and witchcraft, gardening and wild crafting for medicinal herbs and food, and about the ethics of wild crafting and wild tending. We also get into some of our favorite plants, including Sochan, Rebecca Lassinata, Poke, Mullen, and Elderberry. And we talk about her new book, Wild Witchcraft, Folk Herbalism, Magic, and Foraging for Spells, Rituals, and Remedies. Well, as usual, if you like the podcast, you can help support it at patreon.com slash plantcunning. And I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so today on Plant Cunning Podcast, we have Rebecca Beyer. And Rebecca is an herbalist, folk magician, and teacher and author living in uh, Western North Carolina. You're coming out with a new book. You've got uh, courses and all sorts of great stuff on your blog, Blood and Spice Bush. Uh, so how are you today, Rebecca? I'm really wonderful. How are you? It's great. It's, Doing well. Yeah. Awesome. Good winter times. We've got lots of snow, got lots of cold. It's But nice yeah. and sunny today, so we're feeling chipper about it. Yeah. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> So we have a traditional first question on the podcast, and it is, how did you come to the plant path? That's a great question. I think it's interesting. I didn't really think about it until I started writing my book that is coming out next year. And they told me I had to write like a biography of myself. And I was like, no, <laughs> I don't want to. But I, I thought about it. I grew up in to a Unitarian Universalist church where my Sunday school was a Wiccan and through both being, you know, exposed to, we mostly raised animals on our farm. We didn't really raise any plants. And then also the influence of this wonderful teacher named Anne, who I had as a, you know, 12 year old, I kind of, I just got super interested in, you know, potions and 12 year old, you know, witchy girl stuff. Uh, <laughs> being in this strange kind of in-between place between uh very suburban and, and very wild, you know, New Jersey. And I uh, ended up working on a living history farm because I was a horse girl also, which is another gateway drug to witchcraft. I've come <laughs> to find out. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel like it's a thing. Like you really got to look into it. Um, but I yeah. <laughs> uh, was driving draft horses at a living history farm and I learned how to garden. And I did a year, like a, I guess it was a five month apprenticeship there. And I just was hooked. I was like, I want to wear linen and I want to drive horses and I want to heal people with herbs and I want to eat, you know, grow my own food. And I started going to school in Vermont for agriculture after that. And that was kind of my gateway. I was taking weeds ecology at university of Vermont. And I was like, wait, aren't all these plants edible? <laughs> you guys are teaching us how to kill and I started um, going to this little herb shop called Purple Shutter Herbs that was owned by a woman in Burlington, Vermont named Laura Brown, who unfortunately has, has passed 
from cancer. And she was my first introduction to healing myself with herbs. Mm. And to make a long story short, I had severe mononucleosis for almost a year. It didn't go away. It just stayed. And all these doctors, I went to six different doctors and none of them, they kept being like, it's allergies. You actually have anxiety disorder. You are not actually sick. And it wasn't until I got a blood test from a school nurse that I found out I had mono. And I went and talked to this woman, Laura Brown, and she got me a little mixture of herbs from her magical, beautiful little shop. And I was, you know, started feeling better in three days after feeling horrible for almost, you know, at that time, like eight months. And that's when I really was like, I have to go somewhere to learn about this. And a year later, I moved to Appalachia to Western North Carolina, where I live now to go to herb school. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey. What herb school did you go to? Um, I went to the, uh, and I'm laughing because I'm actually an herbal school dropout. So I feel extra, (laughs) (laughs) but I went to the Ash school here in in, um, Asheville, which I don't think actually is open anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it was lovely, but I wanted to be out in the woods learning the plants. And it was a lot of classroom work. Yeah. Yeah. I ended up dropping out after a couple of months and I started cooking for the chestnut school of herbalism's trips. I, I do a lot of fire cooking and primitive skills and they hired me to kind of come and like tend fire and cook for all the students while they were on their herb school trips. And I got to sit in on all the lessons with Juliet Blankenspore. Nice. And she was my kind of like first herb teacher in that way. And I started an apprenticeship with uh, Natalie Bogwalker of wild abundance school who I now work with and teach for. And that was 11 years ago. So those were my, my real favorite and most close to the heart teachers, I think. Oh, very cool. Yeah. I've, I've done a little cooking for seven songs programs too. And oh my the- gosh. Yeah. So that's funny. I love seven song. I see him at conferences a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> he was, he was one of my herbal teachers. That's at his program. That's a great way to, to get the free education, you know? Cook. Oh my gosh. Right. You get paid to hang out in the woods and cook over a fire and listen to herb lore. Absolutely. Yeah. Really cool. So yeah, that's cool to hear about some of your teachers. Um, so who have been some of your teachers um, in regards to magic and witchcraft? Yeah. Well, my first teacher was that woman. I wish I don't even know her last name anymore. Cause I was so young, but this woman, my Sunday school teacher, mm-hmm. she was a ordained gardenarian Wiccan. Mm-hmm. And um, in New Jersey, there's a lot of uh, cups chapters in the UU church. They're a pagan chapter. And it was really nourishing. I felt very much like I had come home, I guess, when I started learning from her. And she gave me, I, I loved to read as a kid. And I had a um, pretty like insatiable appetite for books. And she gave me a bunch of her kind of like adult witchcraft books. And I just like devoured them, even though I didn't understand like 85% of what they were talking about. <laughs> And then I, when I moved here, I, um, well, I skipped an important thing. I moved to upstate New York where you guys are kind of near, I guess. I went to Bard college for two years in Annandale and Hudson. And I, uh, I met my best friend who I actually moved here also to be near Sarah Lynch Thompson. She's an Appalachian ballad singer. Oh, cool. And, um, the two of us ran a, a club called the circle that was for witches and, alternative religions is what the college had us call it. And, um, we went to a a group. It was like an old practicing group called high Valley. Have y'all ever heard of high Valley? Mm -hmm. No. 
yeah, I don't know if it's around anymore. I really hope it is, but it was a big rural working group of witches and magical practitioners that um, outside of Rhinebeck. And it was just amazing and beautiful. It was my first public like group rituals. And I was just like, so smitten. And it was, those are some of my most precious memories of those early, you know, 18 and 19, like working with a group and really, really important in my development. When I moved here, I got really involved. Um, I found two blogs actually. Uh-huh. <laughs> One was Sarah, uh, Sarah Ann Lawless's blog. Um, she now runs Bane Folk, yeah. um, poisoning herbs, kind of apothecary. And she wrote a blog piece about traditional witchcraft. And I read about it and I was like, that is really what I've been looking for. Historically, folklorically based witchcraft rather than the like more modern, um, I would say like self-created religions like Wicca, which are equally as valid and wonderful. But I, I was really wanting that historic bent. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I then also found another blog called bioregional animism that was run by my, my now friend, Marcus McCoy, who has troll cunning forge and makes magical blacksmith items. And through the, through their work, I was really inspired. You know, I was, I was taking lots of plant walks and really getting my hands on identifying plants in the field and making things with plants when I moved here and then using that praxis of bioregional animism or looking at the spirit of the plants in the place you are at, um, and kind of funneling it through the lens of traditional witchcraft, which is based largely in English. Um, it, many of the traditions are different, but a lot of it's based in English and Irish folk history, which is my ancestry. So I really felt like I was kind of developing this place-based, but ancestrally influenced historical witchcraft, which is what I was wanting so badly. Mm. So that's, that's a little bit about the <laughs> many steps that took me here. And Byron, of course, I've been to many of her workshops and classes. She's a huge influence. Byron Ballard. Yes. Yeah. For sure on us as well. So when you, I'm, you were just talking about your ancestry and I'm just wondering when you came to the mountains of North Carolina, did you feel like in your bones, like a sense of being home with, you know, your ancestry um, and, and those folks who have settled there? That's a really good question. I actually didn't. I've never really felt a strong sense of home. We moved a lot when I was a kid Hmm. and I've never lived anywhere longer than four years in my life until I moved here. And I've lived here 12 years now in March. Um, And so now it feels like home. Now it does. But then I've had this constant sense of impermanence and ungroundedness that I felt it was difficult. Like I'm an extrovert. I'm an ENFP if you're into Myers-Briggs and I love meeting people and talking and connecting, but I would kind of just blast through places because I was moving constantly and Mm -hmm. I switched, you know, schools two years in and always making friends and connections, but not keeping them, you know? Yeah. And I think when I moved here, I wanted to feel a home and I did make home here. And now I feel that way, but my ancestors are, I'm 50% Irish actually. Mm -hmm. And Irish was like the, I would say the third most populous um, group of settlers here and colonists, but, uh, I didn't really feel a huge connection here. Cause I, I didn't feel like that was quite allowed yet. Cause I hadn't really lived here very long. Hmm. I see. Yeah. yeah makes sense. So what do you love about Appalachia? 
That's a good question. Um, I, I love most, almost everything about Appalachia, except for some, you know, probably, uh, what are considered cultural, but are like, not actually, they're just problematic behaviors amongst white people. Um, I love the music traditions. I love the food traditions. Uh, the folk medicine is really what has captured me. Appalachian folk medicine Mm -hmm. is probably my largest interest, um, area today, other than Anglo-Saxon and medieval herbalism, uh, (laughs) which is like another nerdy offshoot of my passions. And I just love, I love this landscape. I love that it's the most biodiverse, one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. And I love, there's just a, there's a vibe. There's a big vibe here. I'm sure if you've been here, you know what I'm talking about. We have the oldest river, well, the third oldest river in the world, the French Broad River. And then these mountains may be the oldest in the world. And that's, I don't know. I think it's just really particular, you know, and special. I agree. I'm more of a Northern Appalachian boy. Uh, my, my relatives are from West Virginia and Pennsylvania. Now we live in the Appalachian in New York, but I, it's still the same mountain chain. And uh, I, yeah. I, yeah, there's just something about it. There really is. I'm from, my family's from where yours is as well. Western Pennsylvania, pretty much everybody. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in, uh, near Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's where I'm from. Pittsburgh. Nice. <laughs> That's where I was born. Yeah. Nice. So, um, in, in talking about, well, magic too, I like to often just go back to basics and because everyone mm. Like we, we use the same words for a lot of things, but people have different understandings of them. And it's good to pick, you know, practitioners brains about, you know, what does, what does magic mean? So do you have a favorite definition of magic or like, what does it mean to you? That's a great question too. I feel like I've said that to every question. I apologize. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, y'all just love ask it. great questions. Um, <laughs> oh, thank you. I love the definition of magic as, and I wish I could remember where I read this. It was from a book that I read as a teenager. Uh, magic is intention amplified by emotion. Hmm. Okay. And I've always loved that because to me, it was like, when I try to explain to somebody like, what is a spell? I'm like, it's kind of like wishing for something so hard. It cannot help but happen. Hmm. And I, I wish I could remember those are not my own original thoughts by any means. And I wish I could remember who said that, but I think maybe it was my teacher in, in, uh, the church, uh-huh. and, but I'm not sure. Very cool. Yeah. Okay, I like that yeah. definition a lot. Yeah. And it kind of speaks to a more, um, like there's a lot of different kinds of magic too. And that seems to me <laughs> be the way like folk magic, especially is, uh, is, you know, European, uh, folk magic is uh how how it works yeah doing like into like intense rituals um you're using intention and emotion and will just directly exactly and that's one reason i love you know i'm very interested in ceremonial magic also Mm -hmm. and i love um i'm a huge agrippa fan yeah (laughs) very interested in a lot of that um, the grimoire works are so fascinating to me and I'm not exactly sure why, but yeah, I always come back to folk magic. That's what I do every day, you know? Yeah. So it's like my daily practice. Yeah. What, what is your <clears throat> daily practice? Like, I'm curious, like what, um, a day in a modern Appalachian tradition <laughs> practitioner herbalist gardener looks like. <laughs> yeah. It is funny. Cause I, I make most of my living these days as a tattoo artist and I, mm. 
um, work with one of my best friends in the world, who's also my mentor, Balin Lavore. Uh, she's an incredible, incredible artist, and we are both magical practitioners. So our shop is an incredible oasis of house plants and um, grimoires. And awesome. we have a huge working altar in the shop. So most mornings when I'm going into work at 7:30 a.m. to draw for my day, I start by doing a uh, money magic or money draw spell, and I also cleanse the studio you know, people are crying and, and processing. And like, we have a lot of stuff moving through that shop. You <laughs> have laughter, joy, pain, sorrow, everything. It's like a therapy office. And so I usually use mugwort to cleanse the space. I cleanse myself too. If I'm feeling away, then I don't want to bring that to my clients. Mm-hmm. So I, I use a lot of smoke herbs. I'm very passionate about addressing cultural appropriation, especially in smoke herbs. And I've written some eBooks about it. Uh, but I, I use mugwort a lot because it actually grows all around our shop oh, nice. and I'll cleanse the space. Uh, we use um, some conjure and uh, hoodoo tools through my friend Balin. Um, we have some fixed names, $2 bills from hoodoo Moses and things like that on our money altar. And yeah, that's usually how I start my day. I also do a lot of consultations. People call me a lot for, Hey, my house has a spirit. Like, what should I do? I'm buying a new house or new land. How can I fix the boundaries of it? Um, I also give herbs just for medical reasons to people. Um, yeah, it can be a real mixed bag. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, kind of depends on the needs of the community and the day. And Yeah, we're currently trying to start a free apothecary. Uh, my partner and I are working on that with some of my uh, community members um, called Mutual Aid Medicines, where we're hoping to be able to give out more large amounts of free medicine and like a pointed effort this by this mid probably by midsummer. I'm hoping to get that set up. Nice. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. We interviewed uh, Joel Hollis. Uh, he hey. similar kind of like, he has like his uh, free apothecary <laughs> set up. People can just come and, you know, self-diagnose. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's awesome. I've been, we took, I used to run an herb school called Sassafras uh, oh, school cool. with my friend, Abby Artemisia and we, we closed it for COVID, but um we would take our students there. We love that place. Nice. Oh, nice. I haven't seen it yet, but that's definitely on my list. I've only, yeah, I've only seen it in, in the videos. <laughs> you have to go. It's, it's yeah. really remarkable. You're going to love it. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah bring money. Cause you want to buy plants. Bring some- <laughs> he has tons of plants and pots sitting around. I'm like, can I buy that? And he's like, sure thing. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. I want to be that when I'm like in my seventies or I don't even know how old he is, but you're going to do it. I have no doubt in my mind. Oh yeah. I can see it <laughs> on his way. <laughs> so you've got a, uh, a new book coming out. Um, it's called wild witchcraft, right? Yeah. And when, so when is that coming out? Uh, I think we're due May 10th, 2022. Nice. And you can pre-order it already. You can. Yeah. If you click on, <clears throat> if you, if you go on my social medias, if you go to uh, Instagram and just search blood and spice bush, if you click on my little link, it'll take you right to all the places you can pre-order it. Nice. Yeah. So it, it's looking very interesting and I think it's going to be a great, um, a great book for especially uh, witches and pagans who, and magical practitioners who need like a, it's like a comprehensive guide to uh, gardening, wildcrafting. And using, you know, these herbs magically. Yeah. Um, I wanted to do something more focused because mm. when I go to conferences, I've gone to a lot over the past probably six years and 
I just felt like there was a gap between people reading about and talking about plants, often seeing Latin names incorrect or like plants being talked about, like nobody knew what they were in actuality. And I, I just wanted to empower some more people to have direct hands-on experience and relationships with plants that yeah. worship nature. Cause I do feel like that's a big gap because it's so inaccessible sometimes. Yeah. It's kind of weird how that happens. Right. Yeah. yeah (laughs) but I mean I think that is the most important thing is having direct experience with the plants totally and then if you know the names and you can do a lot more too but um like you you have access to all of the lore but really you know (laughs) even just like knowing dandelion and on a on a first name you know person to person basis is a can be really amazing so um tell us about about the book it's it's kind of structured into four parts yeah it's um basically what we did was we have a section on growing magical herbs so Mm -hmm. it has the basics of organic gardening that was actually what i studied in school was plant and soil science and so i got to i haven't gotten to dig out my soil science notes in years it was really fun to write that section and um also just like composting the basics of propagation and uh, we love to wild tend plants too at our land. We live on a nine acre uh, mountainside out here nice. and, you know, dig up some nettles from somewhere we harvest frequently and then plant them at our place. And then we don't have to go out and get nettles anymore. Mm-hmm. So some fun, easy stuff like that. And then the next section is on wild crafting and there's a big section on foraging and eth- the ethics of it. And uh, just some of the like subtleties and complexities and the nuances of those relationships with wild crafting. Cause it is, this book was intended to be for the whole country, Mm -hmm. but, and that's tough because everything is so different and region-based. Oh yeah. I'm curious how that will be received. And I really tried to make it so that people will do their personal research on their specific region to figure out what is and isn't okay for the environment and make choices when they learn more information about that in their practice. Yeah. In some ways it might might even be more relevant to like people in Europe or East Asia (laughs) than like people in the Southwest, but you know, it's the principles that are important. And I think you expressed those well in what the the portion that we read. Um, So the gardening part, I think it was really cool. Like having all of that, uh, information just laid out. I mean, this is stuff that like AC and I have been, you know, cause we've been doing this for 10 years too, but it's like for somebody starting out or even intermediate, like they, these are very important things to know, like NPK, like how to make compost, the phosphorus levels. Yeah. yeah just like you, you dove into some of those like details and made it really clear. So I'm so glad. Yeah. Yeah. And um, some of the things that I, Oh, uh, where where did this go? Yeah, like um, talk about pattern recognition. Oh yeah, I think that is so important. Come from like a permaculture background, like I mean that we talk about like pat like pattern language and pattern recognition, but really from any st- any study, you know that's important. <laughs> but like, how do you? How, what's the importance of pattern recognition for you in this work? That's a really cool question. Also, I I think it's like the foundation of how humans and plants have co-evolved. Our brains are so good at recognizing patterns. If you ask a child, you know, I I used to teach foraging um, like three to four times a week for like a tour company in Asheville, which was super fun and really got me like, I think helped me get to the place I am with my wild plant identification 
Cause you always get asked, what's that? You know, and you have to go look up a new plant, <laughs> but kids yeah. would come all the time. And in three hours I could, I would trust a four-year-old with identifying, you know, purple dead nettle in no problem. They're not going to make a mistake because their little brains are perfect pattern recognizers. The older we get, I think the more we lose that, but as yeah. young people, you can really see the human adaptation of pattern recognition and as expressed through a practice with plants, I think it's remarkable. Yeah. And then you get into like doctrine, doctrine of signatures is in a certain, like a, a kind of yes. mission. Definitely. And I, you know, I was reading about, I swear, I found a study somewhere that asked what percentage of like the time is the doctrine of signatures. Correct. Have you ever seen that study? Hmm. No, but that sounds interesting. I'll, yeah. If I find it, I'll email it to you. But they said it was 60%, right? Wow. 60% of the time. Nice. I was like, what? That shocked me. Yeah. Very interesting. Better than the uh, average. <laughs> I know. Just seriously. <laughs> yeah, that's great. So um, you also talk about like composts, uh, leaf mold. That's something I learned from Joe Hollis was uh, making that leaf mm-hmm. mold with leaf and, pe- and urine. I yeah. Think- that's, that's like one of my favorite things to make is like an alchemical, like a uh, mixture and you can, <laughs> I, I like to use it. Um, well, I'm, I'm making mine to use for, um, woodland plants like ginseng and yes. those, those sort of plants that need that, that high fungi, uh, hummusy soil. Um, but it, there's, you know, it, it, you can also use it instead of peat moss in soil mixtures, which is also important, but how, how do you, how do you use it? Yeah. I got really into it when I was growing sweet potatoes, actually. Oh, have you ever grown? I don't know if y'all can grow sweet potatoes. I don't imagine. <laughs> well. In Pittsburgh, I was growing them and cool. we're, we just got a, a hoop house. Mm. so We're going to try them in there and see how it goes. That is so cool. So, you know, a sweet potatoes do pretty good down here and we, we are pretty chilly. We're a six uh, B right here. That's mm. Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh is kind of the same. So. Right. Yeah. It's wild. Cause we're in the mountains. So um, the leaf litter is great because it's not high in nitrogen unless you pee in it. And, uh, I would use the plain leaf mold in like, kind of like it's a soil conditioner to fluff soil up for sweet potatoes. And I love it so much. And also just as a mulch between, um, I was super interested and in, kind of brought up in the world of biointensive, uh, like John Jeevan style gardening and French biointensive methods. Yeah. And so I use a lot of like close plant spacings and a lot of mulch. So I don't have to weed cause I'm very lazy. And I, as a forager, it's really hard to summon the, the gumption to have a big garden when you can just eat stuff, you know, off the corner of the park, you know, it's like, it's difficult. <laughs> so I love deep mulch and uh, leaf mold is the perfect thing to cover the soil, keep moisture and prevent, you know, having to water a ton or weed a ton. I love it. Yeah. And I guess that's the wonderful thing about wild tending and like how I see permaculture is kind of like in be, it's like, uh, there's foraging, there's wild tending, and then there's permaculture is kind of like on a spectrum. <laughs> it's so true. That's a great way to look at it. And so for wild tending for you and in, in your practice, are you mostly, um, bringing some wild plants to the property that you tend like you did with the nettles, or are you also tending wild spaces like out in state lands or something like that? Like what's your practice look like for that? Yeah. Having lived here for 12 years now, it is really incredible to watch um, just to be able to kind of keep mental and paper written data on the different wild plant stands that we harvest from 
Yeah. Um, my partner already had his own foraging practice when we met and it was really cool to be like, oh yeah, I harvest from these service berry trees. Oh yeah. I've seen them do good this year and this year, like comparing notes. It's you know, very seductive to me. So definitely won my heart right away. Um, <laughs> but yeah, or like I found all these chanterelles at this spot this many years ago. And uh, we've kind of been able to track certain spots we harvest from year after year. And uh, we've been growing and tending ramps on our land, which is surprisingly extremely easy. And I was like, yes, <laughs> kind of sad I didn't start doing it sooner. I think I psyched myself out, but yeah, so we, a, I'm sorry, excuse me. What do you want to say? Oh, they're just, they're, they're, they're a little, you know, daunting in a certain way. Like we have a, a lot of uh, beliefs and ideas about them. I mean, they're, they're really easy to over harvest, but they're also really easy to wild tend responsibly. So it's like, I know it's so sad because it's really like, they're very easy to transplant. They're not yeah. as picky about location as I thought. Right. I have some growing up a bunch of, amongst a bunch of privet at our place. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't do anything to it. Song, almost. Yeah. There's, yeah. <laughs> There's like Sochan as well. One of our favorite. Yeah. Oh, we definitely, want, we definitely want to talk about Sochan. Oh, well, definitely. Let's talk about that. But anyway, to wrap up that question, I yeah, think yeah. we, yeah, I that's such a huge passion. And my partner and I are really passionate right now about designing our land. We're, we just moved there last April um, to basically be a wild tended garden that we maybe prune or clean up, you know, three or four times a year, but otherwise just let our favorite milkweed, sochen, um, service berry, persimmon, like the plants that we love, place them correct, you know, in a good way and then let them do their thing get out of the way and pee on them occasionally you know just to keep everybody happy <laughs> yeah that, for sure yeah that's kind of our well part of our idea too for we're doing we're on our this is gonna be our third season here and that's that's definitely part of the uh the plan that's um, so exciting yeah it, yeah like you know, likewise it's 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 fun to get started on this project these kind of projects um oh my gosh yeah <laughs> um but the 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 wild tending, but like foraging and, you know, it can be difficult, especially when they're, you're closer to the city or when there's a lot of other people who aren't necessarily in your community also using those spots because it can very easily go from sustainable to over harvested. So it's just, I, I like with some things, it doesn't really matter. And, uh, with some things it really does. <laughs> um, that's why what the, the, one of the nice things about like being able to ha have access to land that you can, that you can grow these wild plants in. Uh, but yeah, yeah what, what are some of your tips for that um, re responsibly wild harvesting? And like, yeah, I just think about Asheville area. There's so many herb schools there and so many students who are out in the woods. Yeah. So many foragers. <laughs> yeah. Well, one thing is uh, the, the schools here are really good about, you know, you can't like monitor someone forever, but when they take folks out to places, they're always like, they really stress, like, do not come back here and like go hog wild, you know, harvesting all this stuff. And I, you know, there are certain places around here that I've seen get pretty trampled and, um, over harvested. But the one thing I keep coming back to is just invasives. We have yeah. so many invasives in Appalachia. You could never harvest a native plant again and be, you know, well-nourished and, and healed, you know, like there's, I, I think there's this like 
very real. This is my like hot take. I'm sorry. I'm still like figuring this out, but I think there's this very gatekeepy, like humans are inherently destructive and untrustworthy and wild spaces are pristine places without (laughs) humans in them. And I think if we can address that disconnection from nature and say, no, you're at home in nature, you are, you are part of this. We can actually address some of the damaging things that happen in public nature spaces Um, by just making, you know, people, if they know what the plants names are, I don't think they're immediately going to go and pick every single one. If you care about something, I think you'll care for it by monitoring it in that kind of like group foraging, uh, cloud mind, you know? And so that's, that's my take is like, I want to believe humans are inherently good. I really do. There's definitely some crappy ones of us for sure, but I I've struggled to figure out how to language this in my book. Like I believe it's completely possible to ethically wildcraft. And that doesn't mean everyone wildcrafts because for something to be sustainable, it doesn't have to be something every single person does because that is impossible. I see people say, well, foraging is unethical at all today because everyone can't do it. And I I say too, to that, well, then bicycle riding is unethical Mm -hmm. because the the streets would be overrun if every person rode a bicycle and they just won't because everyone's differently abled and everyone has different interests. And I I don't think that's like a a helpful argument. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. The way I see it is that humans are, I mean, we're, we're definitely a keystone species yeah. and whatever amount of damage we can do, we can also do that much good. And so it's a matter of learning how to do that, you know, be in right relationship with yeah. our and our, you know, other than human kin. Rather, and like you, yeah. Yeah, and like you said, if you recognize that you are part of nature, that you are the, you know, of nature and you have that care and you have that kinship, like Isaac just said, then it's going to be really hard to destroy it, you know? Yeah. I wrote, I got a, um, I got my master's a few years ago in Appalachian studies and I wrote a thesis called a place for plants. Mm -hmm. And I had mostly people from app studies, but I also was taking biology classes and I did a self-designed Appalachian ethnobotany major. And I remember my bio teacher who was on my board was like, Becky, how can you promote foraging? People will destroy the mountains. And I said, I said, I was like, I love this professor. He's so great. Um, I told him, I was like, well, how can you promote driving cars? It's already, you know, like we're, right. we're already destroying nature. So to me saying, oh, people who forage are these horrible monsters who take food away from wild animals and destroy nature is so myopic and missing the grand point that capitalism is what's destroying nature, not individual grannies going out and picking dandelions from the soccer field. You know, you're flying. If you're flying in a plane, you're (laughs) (laughs) we're so far gone at this point. It's such a nuanced and complicated conversation. I see a lot of like kind of hate towards foraging online. And so much of it is very valid. Of course, people, of course, people can overharvest things and they do in our area. But I think by offering more accessible education and really like encouraging people to be patient and go slow with these new practices, um, not only to keep themselves safe from poisoning themselves, but and others, but from also um, learning how to wild tend and be in relationship. I do think so many more people could do that. And then those stands will respond 
like in Kat Anderson's book, Tending the Wild, um, they'll respond by growing more robust. And, you know, some plants that we are in relationship with respond to harvest by making more abundance. And I, I think focusing on those types of plants, knowing your species, knowing your seasons and working with plants that are abundant, like those are all ways that I think we can sustainably wildcraft and just knowing there are no percentage rules. I see people say, oh, you can take 30% of a stand. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. What stand are you talking about? <laughs> right. right. And what plant? <laughs> exactly. I think it's like, there's no hard and fast answers to any of these questions. And I don't know the answers, but these are, this is what I think. And I think that humans can learn to get back in this relationship in a really beautiful way and feel welcome and not scared and at home. And I want that for every person that wants that, you know? Yeah. I think that's one of the great things about um, harvesting like weeds. Weeds. Yeah. That aren't, you can't over harvest Japanese knotweed. Yeah. No. Wouldn't that be great? It's delicious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Weed crafting, I guess. Is mm, what, love it. But yeah, I think um, you're right about the, the more people who are educated <laughs> about it, who are like going out into the woods and harvesting really abundant plants. Um, and then maybe when they see a less abundant plant, they're more likely to like grab some seeds if they're, if the seed is in season and spread the seeds as they walk further, or mm -hmm. if they harvest carefully a plant that's less, um, uh, less common, you know, there's ways to do it. Like I love hearing about herbalist Jim McDonald's ways of oh. harvesting Solomon seal. At yes. The and propagating yeah. more. And so I think you're right that more people who are consciously wild crafting and weed crafting can help to like cultivate these wild stands of plants. Yeah. And I think I, I, I know Facebook is a terrible you know, <laughs> hole of evil, but it, some of the plant groups I'm a part of, like if, if a new forager makes a mistake and like posts a picture of like, Hey, I got this um, these ramps today and they pulled them up by the roots, people will just roast them alive. And I, it's like, I both understand the necessity of expressing the seriousness of their offense. Mm -hmm. But then I also realized so many people are not asking questions because they're terrified of <laughs> being yelled at by internet strangers. And I, I wish that people would be a little more patient. Right. Well, Especially if you're an experienced plant worker, like just remember where you were at. None of us very few of us grew up with this. Mm. And I think there's a temptation to gatekeep or act really high and mighty towards new foragers and herbalists Absolutely. because of the fear of, um, of that damage that is already happening and is, is already going on. And also maybe some ego projections. And I, I really, I have a hard time with that. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, the, the, the fact that you know that, yeah. <laughs> Well, like the fact that people learn and grow is really important. Like I, so yeah. I, this year I did, I hunted for the first time. I took my hunter safety. I got my first Good deer. job. Thanks. And, um, one of the things that they, they tell you in the class is that like the first, first time you go hunting, you know, you, you like, you know, you're real excited. You get your first deer and then like, you have a tendency to go for the, the limit, like as many tags as you can get. And then after you, you know, grow and mature, you, you suddenly only go for, you know, the, the right deer, you know, and it's like, yeah. it takes a long time to, to learn the plants and to learn um, what they can, what they, what is over harvesting, what is over harvesting, what is not over harvesting, what is right relationship with them. 
And, and that can be yeah. mean you make mistakes sometimes. Right. Like you like <laughs> like you have to make mistakes sometimes to learn sometimes. Right. Yeah. I love that. I my partner and I are both um also hunters. And I think that's a great, a great way to look at that. And you brought up hunters ed. I took mine this year as well. And I remember they also were saying, Hey, experienced hunters be kind to new hunters and like welcome them in, especially if they're people from non-traditional sections of society that have access to hunting, like people of color and women and, um, young people, you know, like let, like, let make room for people in this space to experience this beautiful human need, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really good comparison. I love that you brought that in. Oh, thanks. So is it time to talk about Sochan? Oh. Let's talk about, I could talk about Sochan all day long. I love that. <laughs> awesome. It's, yeah, it's one of the first plants that Isaac put in the ground at the last place we lived and here. Mm. Um, and it's just such a tasty and beautiful plant. So maybe, I don't know, maybe you could introduce our listeners to Sochan and just off the cuff, tell us about it. Yeah, I love Sochan. Uh, one of our friends from the Echinacea family and um, is Rudbeckia Lassionata. And I love it. My name is Rebecca, but most people I'm close with call me Becky. So I always say if I was a plant, I would be Rudbeckia. Um, <laughs> it's a super original plant nerd joke. Uh, I learned about Sochan from Juliet um, from Chestnut School when I was uh, in one of our beautiful little campouts with her school. And I tasted it as a dried leaf the first time. And the second time I met it, I had it some with a friend who was more experienced uh, plant idea than me. And I was like, wow, this tastes so much like spicy celery. I really yeah. was sh- struck by the taste or flowery kind of perfumey celery. Aromatic. Yeah. yeah, it's very aromatic. And I, I think that speaks to the medicinal uses of that plant really quick. Um, and I'd love to hear what y'all like to use Sochan for. But the name, first off, Sochan, uh, Sochani is in Salgi or Cherokee language, how you say the name of that plant. And out West, it's Cochani or Cochan um, in the Oklahoma band. And it's uh, traditionally eaten, cooked in water and discarded and then fried in grease, bear fat, traditionally, which I love to have it that way. It's one of my, whenever I have bear fat, <laughs> which is an, uh, not often these days, Um but we also use the root as a immunostimulant, just like cousin echinacea. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I first, um, I think I saw a video of maybe Joe Hollis, somebody, somebody talking about it, but I, I was uh, foraging in one of my favorite spots down by a river mm-hmm. and I saw it everywhere. And I was like, I know what that, I, I gotta, I, I know that's a cool plant. So I took a little <laughs> uh, sucker back with me because there was, you know, many, many, many dozen, you know, hundreds of, of, of individuals there. I planted it and I let it grow for a year. And like, I got to know it that way. And, mm-hmm. Oh, wait, this is, this is so Chan. This is what they're talking about. Yeah. And over the years, like it, it just self seeded everywhere. And at this point in the garden in Pittsburgh, it's one of those plants that you could not over harvest probably. <laughs> but what I really love about it is that, well, it's native and it does so well. Like it, it is so prolific and mm-hmm. you know some people don't like that because it's a little aggressive <laughs> yeah. it's native so it's not invasive <laughs> um 
but it's you can eat the greens so early it's like nettles and sochan right in like um as the, yeah. the snow is thawing you can mm -hmm. have your early greens and that's one of my favorite combinations is sochan and nettles mm -hmm. that's a great combination and it's a traditional spring food if you think about if you're familiar at all with are you all familiar with appalachian folk medicine and like the modalities of that uh, a little bit a little bit yeah like um yes yeah, somewhat Awesome. So if you think about in Appalachian folk medicine, the blood is like sap in a tree, right? Yeah. In the winter it's thick and slow and low. And in the summer it's high and fast and thin, right? So Sochan is one of those bitter or aromatic or very green nutritive spring blood tonics as a tonic food, which came from, you know, Tsagi, Catawba, uh, Yuchi, all the um, first nations people in this area where we live. And and then it became, you know, a more broadly Appalachian spring food tradition. And it's wild because it's actually illegal for most uh, areas of the Cherokee nation for people to forage it. And they have gone to court a number of times to try to get uh, access to Sochan foraging areas wow. that are like, you know, owned by state forest or things like that. So I always think about that when I'm eating Sochan. And uh, we also transplanted a bunch to the farm that I lived at the past five years before we moved out uh, to our place this past April. And there's, I planted like two crowns. Now there is a patch I would say is like 10 by 12 <laughs> there. And we did a, um, we, we root divided them. So we cut little sections yeah. and gave away a ton of them. And I just think it's such a great plant to give away, especially to folks who are not having access to this plant, especially First Nations people, and one that is really easy and fun to wild tend. And they have beautiful flowers. So it's like a great yeah. pollinator attractor too. It's such a great per permaculture plant. Like when, and I don't know why permacultures yeah. don't talk about it so much so much because it's native, it's a perennial vegetable, food is medicine, like medicine mm -hmm. plant, and the it's an insectary plant, you know, par excellence. Mm -hmm. It's like yes. huge, like of dozens of beautiful yellow flowers all the little insects all the little wasps are coming to it mm -hmm. it's just so amazing and have you noticed that it likes a particular place in the garden or in the wild to grow like full sun or edge or wet feet it honestly seems like it can do anything i've seen it grown at my mentor natalie's place along a little creek it grows as you know it grows great naturally just along riversides uh -huh. and we grew it in full sun with hardly any water and it was just like happy as a clam so <laughs> i'm just convinced that sochan is like the great adapter you know yeah. and like they can grow anywhere that they want <laughs> yeah. except for maybe like full shade in the forest right. but i've yeah. seen it in pretty deep shade before too that's great not full shade but yeah. yeah maybe not like piney woods you know like a dry pine forest or something yeah. they might not like that it's the river's edge a lot I've seen in the wild. I think put um, a whole hedge in when we first moved in because we're kind of close to a, a road and already year two, the Sochan was 10 feet tall. 10 feet yeah. tall with these like oh. beautiful, um, you know, flowers coming out. So mm -hmm. already creating like a beautiful natural hedge with some elder and some um, Jerusalem artichoke and roses and yeah it's a good yeah yeah i'm so curious about sochan too you know the black-eyed susan which is another cousin mm -hmm. of sochan like echinacea 
um, was also used, uh, the root was used medicinally in our area for, you know, as a wash for infected wounds and a um, really well-loved local herbalist, uh, Dave Meesters uh, with Terra Silva School with Janet Kent, um, who are amazing practitioners. Uh, he wrote a really cool, just personal experiment where he had used the root um, I think it was a tincture of the root against an infected tooth he was dealing with and it resolved it really beautifully. And I was so heartened to hear that. Um, and I'm excited to do some more personal work experimenting with the tincture of Sochan root wow. and as, you know, an antiseptic and a wound wash and things like that. So I'm curious to like, kind of see what else Sochan has that maybe yeah. we've either stopped thinking about or don't necessarily go to, cause it is so abundant. Right. Yeah. I'm now I'm curious too. I'm going to have to tincture some of the roots of our plants and, and play with it a little bit, maybe yeah. we'll back in like a year and, and talk mm-hmm. about our experiences. <laughs> That's, That's like what I live for. I love the experimentation and we, we love, I love to cook. I'm a huge obsessed oh, yeah. food. I mean, I love to eat. That's why I forage. Let's be real. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And cooking things and like trying new ways to make quote unquote yucky wild foods taste good is one of my favorite things and a lot of people don't like sochan because it's very flowery yeah and i think if you cook it the traditional way like parboil it in water and then cook it in some fat with salt like you will love it it's so good it's like velvety spinach texture mm-hmm. and then also the stems are traditionally eaten especially by choctaw folks um i've pickled them lacto fermented the stems please try it it's so good if you haven't had them they're delicious like pickle stems i've used them in like soups Oh, like perfect. You know, mm-hmm. that way. But I usually, I, I haven't eaten them much after May, you know, like you usually just eat them when yeah. they're, they're little and then kind of let them grow. Um, yeah. Like what I, I do that with, with, uh, with nettles too. And then, cause by then there are, there are new plants <laughs> to eat. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. But I have mostly just, just eaten it, but it would be, I feel like it would be a good candidate for like the root leaf flower tincture. Mm-hmm. I know some people do that with echinacea um, and each of those parts are so potent like the, the root is potent medicinally probably the leaves are just so good as a food and the flowers are so amazing I feel like each of those has a different potency mm. and would be good together but that's just like a you know a thought yeah a thought <laughs> I think that's a great idea the flowers were used as a wash um, traditionally so that's a I think that would be totally appropriate very cool. well, yeah, that, that'll be, that'll be. Also, to... just one more thing. I love the, the flowers are so beautiful and they mm-hmm. last really long. If you cut them, I put them in my wild bouquets when I go to farmer's markets mm-hmm. and they just like brighten the booth and people always ask about them. So that's wonderful. I love that. Yeah. Very bright. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I wonder what it's like planetary correspondences are probably sun, right? One of those flower sun, like radial flowers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm starting to learn, like, we, we had on another um, herbalist from around your neck of the woods um, on about astro herbalism, uh, but, and she has like some ideas about it, and I've got some other ideas, but, well, well like, for it? instance, like, Ella Campaign has a bright sun flower, but it's mercury, you know? Yeah, There's that's a, spicy, yeah. and almost warming licorice-like nature, it makes me curious about that that's wild who did you who was the astro herbalist you interviewed um sarah what's her last name corbett yeah oh and i haven't listened to that one yet i just listened to wolf dieter uh 
Stahl's um, interview because I'm reading his book right now and I was so tickled to see you interviewed him. Oh, cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I love his work. I use it. I use it. I quote him all the time in my work. (laughs) Yeah, he's so rad. I was just like smitten the whole time talking to him. Precious. He's precious. Yeah. Yeah. So which book are you reading of his? Just curious. Uh, The Untold uh, History of Healing. Awesome. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, he's an inspiration for sure. Yeah. And maybe we can just keep riffing on some more plants. Yeah. Um, I'm wondering, you mentioned um, in your magical practice, you use mugwort as a smoke herb. And I'm wondering if you have any other magical herbs, any other herbs that you use in ritual or things that, um, you know, that come up, that, that you use a lot for magic. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the, like, the things that really gets my goat is um, using, uh, you know, native plants or, or invasive plants for kind of their corresponding uses to plants in other places. Like if I think about like mandrake or datura or uh, henbane or belladonna, the kind of big um, witchy plants for, you know, only one of those really grows here is the detura, or we call it jimson weed. Yeah. And the others are very hard to grow here though. You can do it. I do know someone who can, who grew a mandrake outside successfully around here, but she's mm-hmm. an exceptional plant grower. So I don't know if other people could do it. Do it uh, in a greenhouse, probably Isaac did it in a, greenhouse. in a greenhouse. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's wonderful. I would love to grow them someday, but uh, I end up using a lot of roots in my work for, um, a poppet or something like that. And I use poke a lot for that. Mm, yeah. And, um, great plant. Yeah. Yeah. Phytolaca Americana, right. Uh, and the Phytolacaceae family, um, the purple berries, I think a lot of people know poke because it has such a showy hot pink chunky stem and big, beautiful broad leaves and the berries. Um, but I use that plant for magic a lot. And it is also, you know, a toxic plant but it's also edible. It's also medicinal. And I think the place where like food medicine and magic meet is a place I love to live because yeah. some, I realize now when you ask me that they see that I, I think about a lot of the plants that I used a lot are those kind of like threefold plants. Mm. Um, I use poke roots as dollies to do workings on um, for healing or for um, curse breaking, which is one of their uh, hoodoo uses, which is the black Southern African influenced folk magical practice folk root um is one of my favorites though to use for root dollies and i also use dandelion for root dollies too another like human looking um multiple branch shaped root i use that one a lot for healing magic or magic associated with the element of air Mm. Uh, because dandelion seeds seeds, right yeah yeah Um, that's another one that's so fun isaac you said with the radial sun-like flower that's not necessarily a sun herb Right. Jupiter. It's more of a Jupiter herb. Mm-hmm, exactly. And an air herb for me personally. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I use uh, poke and dandelion a lot for all types of stuff. And the poke, I make pokeberry ink to write sigils with, and yeah. um, it kind of fades with time, which is really kind of special. And I use the root chopped in bags to prevent uh, disease and illness, which is what an Appalachian folk use of that plant. Um, I also put tiny chips of the root in incenses that I use only outdoors. Mm. I'm not positive that the phytolocin or phytolocin would be smoke derived, but just to be safe, I don't use it inside, Mm -hmm. um, for spirit, spirit work and spirit summoning and banishing. 
So there are so many things you can do like that. I think if you learn the lore of a plant and then look at it's like similar energetic and even shape correspondences, right. it's kind of like the Appalachian belladonna, you know? <laughs> yeah, For sure. that's a really, that's a really crucial understanding. I mean, poke is just, I, it's one of my favorite plants too. Oh, neat. powerful, you know, and it's so useful in so many different ways. So true. I actually have a huge one tattooed down my entire arm and I'm always showing people the tattoo because it has the berries on it. And I'm like this, it looks like this. It's, I'm like a living uh, plant ID book, but it's awesome. also like on, on Facebook, speaking of Facebook groups, Please. you go on wild, wild foraging groups. It's like every, in the summer, every other is like, what is this plant? And it's like poke. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> That's poke. Oh yeah. I love when I teach foraging, I'll like eat a berry pretty frequently and swallow it. And people are always like, Oh my God, what are you doing? I'm like, this is a good plant to learn the scale of toxicity from, you know, like, um, and how to cook it and stuff. Like I've, I've had people prepare poke for me that wasn't cooked properly and eaten it and it's burns your mouth. And you're like, Oh no, we have more information needed on this front. <laughs> right. That is another, like, I, 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 I have been eating the the leaves of poke, the shoots since I was like nine, I think I learned back then. Oh, that's amazing. But it's also one of those plants that I can only eat so much of, even, you know, even if I've boiled it three times and, you know, cooked it, fried it with butter or bacon fat. And, you know, I can still only eat like a small handful before I start feeling like a tingling sensation on my tongue or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Potency is so, so powerful. You just have to really you know, know your limit with it. Same way. Yeah. They say you're only supposed to eat nine messes of it in spring. If you want the, um, the tonic, it's another one of those tonic spring foods in Appalachia. They, and for some reason, if you think about it, it's like the Holy Trinity three times three, three times three is nine. So it's like nine messes will give you uh, freedom from illness until the next winter. Wow. Yeah. That's great. That's a great little piece of lore. Yeah. I love that. And I guess the, the root really is so similar to a, uh, a mandrake and so much easier to grow <laughs> around here. I mean, it just grows by itself. Yeah. And to be clear, I don't think that in any way are they one related or two right. medicinally or, you know, magically super related, but because they are both, you know, poisonous food and medicine and grow in their respective places. I didn't know this, but I read somewhere that people make a jam or jelly from the fruits in Turkey. Hmm. and mandrake and i was like what that's amazing so i have to look into that but they just remind me of each other for their multi-uses and just their abundance in their locations of the origin and you you gotta use what you got you know yeah, exactly that's part of bioregional regional herbal- herbalism and witchcraft it's like well you know we live here for better or for worse with all of its complexity so what do we have around here that it's like beneficial abundant and practical right, right. Yeah, the the uh, mandrake. I grew some from strictly medicinal, and I got them fresh. And I put them in my the seeds in my mouth before I planted them. They all germinated. That's amazing. But the 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 taste was really like there was a little bit of dried berry flesh, and it was amazing. It tasted great. You know, it was oh, like good. <laughs> so one of the it has toxicity, but I bet if it dry, dried, it would have less. Huh. You know, maybe yeah. Dry. It's one of it's one of the least, I have a section in my book on the witch's herbs that goes pretty deep into the phytochemistry of the four mandrake, belladonna, henbane, and detera. Yeah. And mandrake is actually one of the least toxic out of those four. 
in, right. in that like it can kill you or poison you, but it it's less likely to than per se the Tura or Belladonna. Yeah. Henbane being like also the less toxic. But um, they are still, you know, plants you'd be very careful with. But like I've I've drank mandrake wine before, which is a root steeped in red wine. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't drink alcohol anymore, and I would never recommend doing this uh, if you're not as wild as I was when I was 24. <laughs> but um, it makes you it's a deliriant, you know, and it was used traditionally in like brothels and houses of sin in the Middle Ages to. Uh, get people to kind of lose their inhibitions. So as you can imagine, it gives you a wicked headache and it's very bitter <laughs> and um, drying is very drying. Yeah. And I guess like you talk about black henbane too. I mean, that's another one of those, yeah. mm-hmm. but also like has been used as a beer for, you know, many, many centuries in Europe. I mean, pills yeah, pills are, pills are. <laughs> yeah. that's what the word means. Uh, henbane. It's really good. But um, have you have you worked with that a lot? With henbane? Yeah, henbane. Oh my gosh. Henbane is one of my top favorite plants. And um, I, unfortunately, it loves the dry, you know, weather, doesn't yeah. like a lot of moisture and we're very humid here. Mm-hmm. And um, I'd love to try to grow some inside, but I went to Spain to visit a colleague who runs um, Oculta Crafts, my friend Julia. And uh, Sembriana. And, uh, we got to wild harvest henbane together and it was one of the most beautiful, like special moments of my life. And she gave me some seeds and it, I love that plant. So I, I burn the seeds as an incense very infrequently because I have a tiny little bag, (laughs) my precious little bounty. Yeah. I, I grew that one too. It, It did really well in the greenhouse. Wonderful um, to know you're inspiring me to get a greenhouse built. <laughs> well, it's it, the greenhouse is great. I mean, what I did, I used mostly recycled material, but it was still like well insulated. But it it's great for those like Mediterranean arid mm-hmm. plants because you don't get as much wet and it's hotter, you know. So you can oh, just yeah. So all those and do, do really well. Rosemary does really well, you know, all that kind of stuff. And on the on the greenhouse front, I will just say that we, we were able to get an NRCS, which is like a national governmental agency to give us a grant for the greenhouse. So I would look That's into amazing. Thank you. In getting a greenhouse. Yeah. You have to have, you have to show like making money as a farm basically, but you can, it takes a couple of years too, but you can, you can do that. Like, like nice, like who big hoop house, like 10 grand hoop house. You can get that <laughs> just FYI. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I guess. So we've talked about some of the poison plants and then there are those plants. Well, like poke, that's kind of poison and food and medicine. And another one like that, that I think of that Wolf talks about is uh, elderberry. Yeah, it's a great one. So, uh, and that again, you know, like the, you know, you're not supposed to eat this, the berries fresh. And I've even done that, like eating some and it definitely get like a tingly mouth, <laughs> but you can like, you know, it's purg- purgative. But, you know, so it's such a great medicine and, and food. Like I, I, my, one of my favorite pies is elderberry pie. Wow. <laughs> never had that. That's amazing. It takes a lot of berries, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We mostly make all ours into syrup, which we then yeah. unceremoniously down all of very quickly. I know <laughs> right. I mean, with the, with the, pie, the pie, it really is like enough for a whole year's worth of tinctures just eating. <laughs> <laughs> eating in the afternoon. <laughs> you oh have God. a lot of elderberries. 
elder is such a magical plant too. I feel like, you know, one day I would like to write a book just about elderberry lore. It's, yeah. it's so much. So write us a book now. What's, what do you love about <laughs> Tell us some cliff notes of your future. Oh, the cliff notes. One of my favorites from, I think this folk belief comes from, what is it called? It's a part of Austria that if you fall asleep uh, beneath the elder bush, you will wake up and see the king of Elfame or the fairies and his procession, but you dare not move or speak or they'll carry you away with them. Oh, wow. <laughs> and yeah. so you're not supposed to sleep beneath the elder in lots of different countries yeah. uh, throughout Western Europe. They're like, don't do it. You'll see elder. fairies and they'll steal you away. Elder and Hawthorne. That reminds me of um, that old uh, Scottish ballad about um, where the, the queen of Elfland, Thomas the Rhymer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tom Lynn. Tom, well, no, Thomas, Thomas the Rhymer is a, di- a different one. He, he um, falls asleep under a hawthorn tree and then gets taken away by the Queen of Elfland. For seven years. For seven years, he can't speak. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back and he has the gift of prophecy. It's pretty cool. Oh, I have to listen to that one. I'm mostly familiar with, with Tam Lin as far as fairy people and stealing yeah. of people. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff up there. I actually recorded a version on, on YouTube. <laughs> oh my gosh. I didn't know you sang uh, music. That's wonderful. Yeah. Is it under the hills and the rivers? Or yeah, it's on yeah. there. It's like a solo one. Uh, yeah. I, I'm just copying oh. Ewan McCall, McCall, who has the best version, in my opinion, and I, I just try to do it the way he does it. <laughs> yeah, I sing. I end up singing a lot of bits of of songs to my students because there's a lot of plant lore is stored in songs like the. Do you know the ballad "The Wild Wild Berry"? No, I should I should learn that. Yeah, uh, there's this one section in it that's it's just about poisoning a man with uh, belladonna mm. and this woman who does it. And it's it's just a song warning all young men not to eat the wild, wild berry. Oh, mm. I love it. It's wonderful. There's uh, not many versions of it recorded, so it's kind of tough to find, but I will try to email you a copy. It's lovely. A I just. Entendre. Hmm? A little double meaning there. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's really it's wild. But um, it's talking about the the deadly nightshade or the um, the bitter nightshade, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah. So sorry for distracting, but to come back to elderberry, so you're not supposed oh, to. <laughs> 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 what else aren't you supposed to do? Them <laughs> cut them down, maybe. Oh yes, you're not supposed to burn elderberry wood or cut it down, right? Because you'll get the uh, the Heidelmutter, the um, elder mother, will smite you. <laughs> And curse you. Uh, I think I've seen that belief in Scotland and in um, Germanic, you know, Alemannic countries mm. where you're not supposed to cut the elderberry and you should plant it outside your door because it will protect you from evil. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great plant. I, we have a, um, yeah. Oh, sorry, please. Oh yeah. We, we, we all, I like to plant it in front, like at the gateways, you know, it's a good, good guardian. Definitely. And we, you know, there's an old, a German saying, I don't, I wish I could remember how to say it in German, but it's like Lady Elmhorn or Lady Elder, will you give me some of thy wood and I will give thee some of mine when I become a tree in the forest. Mm, yeah. And uh, my students and I, we made up a song um, where we just sing to the elder tree before we harvest them. Do you want me to teach it to you? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Please. Yeah, no problem. It's one of my favorite things because I hear other people now teaching it and it's like kind of snuck its way into a couple of places in our community and I like want to cry every time I hear someone sing it but um, yeah it just goes like this Uh, elder tree elder tree won't you give some wood to me 
And when I'm a tree too, I will give my wood to you. Beautiful. Wonderful. Yeah. You can just chant that over and over again. And whenever we harvest elderflower and elderberries, we sing that over and over again as we're working. And it's like very meditative. We really enjoy it. I love it. And that's like the chant of the, the goddess chant. Yeah, we just used one of the classic, you know, pagan new age chants. It's like such a nice one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> I guess that'd probably also be good to chant when you're literally cutting their wood to propagate too. <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah. Anytime I yank something off of an elder, I will definitely at least sing one round. <laughs> For sure. Yeah, because that's one of my other favorite things about elders, how easy they are to propagate. Oh my gosh. Yes. Mm. yeah so what so what else do you what else do you love about elderberry oh i think there i mean it's such a wonderful medicine and i've to hearken back to my other like extremely nerdy interest which is medieval medicine um it was used the leaves were used as a green elder ointment which i've been looking for the original recipe i found a couple documents here and there uh, it's like a, a lard or fat salve with the leaves for bruising and skin uh, irritations and wounds and things. So I'm really curious to look into the, using the leaves more. I know people had got really excited about tincturing the leaves for COVID at the beginning of the year, um, but I'm not really sure if people are using that because we all know that what does elder contain? cyanides so or cyano compounds so i think um i'm really curious to see what other uses the leaves had traditionally right yeah and then one other plant that um, we wanted to talk to you about is mullen and mullen is one of those amazing plants where the flower the leaf and the root all have different uses oh yeah i love that one yeah. And I love to make candles with them as well. That's such a fun crafting plant, you know? Yeah. Yes. I've, I've actually haven't done that yet, except for in my oh. dreams. I in your a, dreams? Yeah. I had a dream of walking up a beachy cliff with people in black robes holding mullen wands. I've never had dream envy before, but thank you for <laughs> me this new feeling. <laughs> I love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's actually on the list. Um, that's something we were thinking about doing this week, actually, for a little birthday party here. We oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah, they're so fun. And we roll them in herbs and stuff. And I actually make the candles with the leaves now as well, not just the top. Hmm. Uh, dip the oh, leaves in yeah. wax and then roll them up and stick, like, leave the part, the portion that you're pinching as the wick. Oh, in wax paper. And then you can stick them in a little cauldron of sand or something. My friend um, makes little clay cauldrons and we fill them with sand and uh, light them in there. And they're amazing little candles. Wow. That's a really cool. I've never heard of that. Yeah. I have a blog post on my blog about making them. Uh, it's okay. just, if you look up the hags taper or mullen on my blog, you'll find it. But um, yeah, we use mullen all the time for, you know, the classic the tea of the leaf for respiratory wet, you know, coughs and things and to dry stuff out. And I use the root a lot actually for UTI, which I've, I used to suffer from a lot of stubborn drug resistant UTIs when I was drinking a lot of alcohol. And it was so great to like knock it out of the park when I just could not get rid of it. That's great to know. Yeah. Seven song uses it for incontinence and for like people who 
um, maybe have like swollen prostates or have to get up in the middle of the night to pee a lot. So yes, yes. Some the root? bladder uses the root. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that with me. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, and the folklore of Mullen too, you know, yeah, tell us about that. yeah, there's, I think one thing I'm always struck by is the number of folk names Mullen has. Do you know any of the names other than hag or hedge taper? Aaron's rod. Yeah. Aaron's rod blanket leaf. Um, <laughs> one of my favorites is just torches. Okay. Cowboy uh, cowboys. Uh, <laughs> what's the toilet, toilet paper? paper. <laughs> I was like, what are you going to say? Uh, Quaker's Rouge, because you can rub it on your cheeks to make oh. your cheeks pink, because it's not, you know, you're not allowed to wear makeup in the old Quaker church. So I thought that was really cute. That is cute. <laughs> yeah. And um, in uh, German, it's um, uh, the king's candle, a uh, Königskerze, and um, is like a harvest time rites plant. And I also think, you know, Candelaria in Spanish is like candlestick or candle, uh, candelabra. Mm. Mary, mother Mary was believed to carry it on horseback and touch people with it. Or our lady's candle is like the other name. And, um, she would heal people with this magical rod of Mullen. I love wow. that. That's so cool. I haven't heard that. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. There's so much of it. Yeah. Such a great, great plant. Yeah. Oh, and it's a good butter plant. If you're in Ireland, you can use it to prevent, um, people from witching your butter. If you put it in the churn, it'll keep the butter uh, forming nicely. <laughs> hmm. The leaf? Yeah, I think so. I've not found the specific reference. I imagine it would be the leaf. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Sweet. So um, I guess we should probably wrap up this conversation, although you are such a fun person to chat with. I feel like oh, thank you. all day. Oh, it's so wonderful to talk to y'all. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're really excited about the release of the book and, um, we hope everybody who's listening today will pre-order wild witchcraft, the folk herbalism, magic and foraging for spells, rituals, and remedies. And I'm wondering what else you're excited about coming up, or if you'd like to share about any of your online classes or programs or just how people can get in touch. Yeah. Well, I'm always available through my Instagram, which is just blood and spice bush. And um, I just released an online class, kind of my first foray into that world on Hildegard von Bingen and the folk magic of, you know, Alemannic or Germanic women in the 11th century. Like I said, I'm a huge nerd. And this is like one of my little passion projects. So if you're interested in medieval women's herbalism, check that out. It's 35 bucks. It's not a video. It's text-based. So it's very self-paced. Um, I'm also uh, working on some other books. I can't say what they are yet, but I'm really excited to be able to talk about that when I get closer to those deadlines. And um, I always am putting up new little online classes and materials. And I have tons of $5 downloads and PDFs on my website of different um, little modules. So feel free to check it out at bloodandspicebush.com. And you're always welcome to contact me through there. I love meeting new people. And I'm, I promise I'm very friendly despite my extensive knowledge of poison. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much again, Rebecca, for joining us. It's really been fun. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye. You too. Thanks.